Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, then He, Christ, is your hiding place before the coming of the Lord. I'll say that sentence again. If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, then He is your hiding place before the coming of the Lord. If you do not know the Lord Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, then fear God's imminent justice and wrath. Fear that he is coming soon with a judgment upon three kinds of persons. One, those who have heard the gospel and reject it outright by calling it foolish. They turn from it. Christianity is ridiculous. I don't want anything to do with it. Those who believe in Christianity are mentally unstable and foolish. I reject it. That person should fear Second, the untaught of Jesus Christ, 1.5 billion around the world who've never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, we should quickly go to them before the end comes to tell them that they might be saved in this person named Jesus whom they have never heard. And finally, the person to be fearful and, and eager to make right before the Lord is the person who has heard of the things of Christ but only kept them in their mind as intellectual knowledge and actually finds the truths of the Bible and the word of God and the doctrines of the faith boring. These are people who might work a lot for God and say, don't we get into your salvation by working hard for you? And he says to them, hard workers though you are, I never knew you. These are those in whom there is no passion for Christ, no zeal for Christ, no love for Christ, not even the tiniest amount, no thankfulness, no joy, no heart for God at all. These three persons should quickly hear and be afraid at what we see read for us in Revelation 6, 12 through 17. How desperate true revival must come to the church. True revival that says, there's a holy fear of God that should settle on us to guard us from sinning and from acting like we have a relationship with God when in fact we may not at all. The Lord Jesus Christ promises to return in power and in glory to bear the wrath of him, the Lamb, and to destroy all those who have not found their hiding place, their refuge in him. It should stun us in worshipful trembling and wonder-filled faith that the very Lamb who opens the seal of His own wrath and His own judgments upon the creation of God is the very Lamb who came to save the people of God from those very judgments. In heaven on, on the throne is the scarred Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, God's Son. And here in Revelation 6, He's about to open the sixth seal, which means He's going to set it all loose. He's the one doing this. He alone is worthy to open the scroll. Why is he worthy to open the scroll? He's worthy to open the scroll of judgment because he's done everything necessary to escape the judgment. Think big with me about this picture. The Lamb of God. He's called the Lamb because he's got the scars that bought your salvation. And he bought the salvation with a value of his blood infinitely worthy to save not just this world, but 10,000 worlds and more. He shed his blood on the cross as the Lamb of God. Now he opens the seal 
that applies his wrath, just wrath, upon all those who say, forget your stupid blood. I don't want your cross or your humiliation and repentance and forgiveness of sins. He's worthy to open this seal alone because he went to the cross to remove the effects of this seal for all who will receive it. This is one of the most profound observations in the whole of Scripture and therefore in the whole of the world. This is the Jesus who's opening the scroll, releasing his judgment, exacting his wrath on sinners who also said with a smile, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for such belongs to the kingdom. Matthew 19, 14. This is the kind and gentle Jesus who said to all who follow him, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the Jesus who Matthew said, he is a bruised, a bruised reed this Jesus will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory and in his name the Gentiles will hope. The long-suffering, tender, patient, kind, merciful Jesus Christ showed at his first coming the wiping away of the wrath of God by the dying and rising again from the cross makes him worthy then to open the scroll at the second coming and bring upon the judgment from his own wrath upon all those who've refused it. That's why we declare he is worthy. That's why all heaven declares he is worthy, because his sacrifice, his forgiveness, his grace enables him to come now with righteousness and justice and level his wrath upon a world who rejects his grace. We've already seen the first four seals opened in the four horsemen. War, bloodshed, famine, and death. And these four horsemen are with us always. Jesus said they would be back in Matthew chapter 24 and Mark chapter 13 and elsewhere. And they have been with us all the way through this end time season of time that we're in between Christ's first coming and his second. Each of the four horsemen is a merciful warning saying, flee the wrath to come, flee the wrath to come, flee the wrath to come. During this time of wrath, and this time of warning where four horsemen are riding with the sound of snorting and hoofbeats bringing war, bloodshed, famine, and death. Martyrs are being made. Christians are being killed for their faith. Those who love and worship Jesus Christ are being mocked and persecuted and ridiculed. They're being set aside and rejected. They're being told they are extreme in their views and they're being marginalized. And so the fifth seal opens with martyrs, those believers who had given their lives for the gospel of Christ, and they're crying out before the Lord, how long, how long, O Lord, before you bring all this to an end? How long before all the making of martyrs is over and all the winning of your elect is done and all the shame and dishonor upon your son is over? How long? Verses 10 and 11 of chapter 6. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? This is the answer they're given in verse 11. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. That's the time we're in right now, a little longer. Until the number of their fellow servants, that is, believers who die for the faith, and their brothers should be complete. 
That is, until witnessing is over, until all Christian mission and all Christian evangelism and all goodness and kindness and patience comes to its end. That's the wait a little longer, and after that, the end has come. We're in the little longer time right now. Martyrs are still being made around the world. They're still being swept up by grace into the presence of the Lord as they die for their faith. And they're still crying out, how long, O Lord? And he is still giving them white robes and saying, rest a little longer until the full number of those witnesses for my son is complete. Now the sixth seal. I take this to be the future. This is not one more difficulty in this time. This is the conclusion of the time. It's the conclusion when no more witnessing happens, no more opportunity to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the end judgment of the Lamb upon the earth. We know that because it's in answer to the question asked in chapter 6, verse 10 and 11. When will the end come? When will the creating of martyrs be over and our names and our blood vindicated? Now the answer comes in the sixth seal. This is the same description, earthquakes and the sun turning to darkness and the moon turning to blood. It's the same description as we see elsewhere in the cyclical form of Revelation, where Revelation keeps saying the same story over and over again in cycle form. There are three cycles of seven each. You know this. You'll see this as we trek our way through the book of Revelation. It's a glorious restatement of the same thing over and over. It's bowls and it's trumpets and here it's seals. And they're all saying the same thing. Get ready. You don't know when the end of the world is coming, but the end of the world means no more opportunity to believe in Christ. Right now, it's hard to know exactly who the believers are. Creation, as we'll see in a moment, is longing for the revealing of the children of God. We walk around in the world in disguise. Are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Are you ready for the end to come? Are you not ready for the end to come? Is it of no concern to you? The believers of Je- in Jesus Christ are hidden, clandestine, incognito. But there will be a revealing, according to Romans chapter 8 and several other passages, When one day it will come that the making of martyrs and the witnessing and the end of all Christian ministry will come to its conclusion and God will say, it is enough. It is now at this moment too late. Have you ever had a too late in your life? I can remember some too lates in my life. They scar you. They hit you deeply. You can remember them even as I'm asking you right now. Running like crazy to get up to the corner of Morse Thomas Road in Chambersburg, that's where the bus is when you're starting kindergarten. And then I just see the bus driving away when I get there. Too late. Sticks with you. This passage includes three kind warnings to every believer and to every unbeliever. The kind warnings to believers are to be received as a confirmation. Yes, I'm in Christ. Praise the Lord, I'm ready for the end to come. Now I'm on mission. Is my spouse, is my parents, are my children and grandchildren, are they ready to come and find their hiding place in Christ? 
It's also a kind warning because as this passage is read, it's not just a foretelling of the danger that awaits unbelievers. It's actually the powerful word of God which has the ability to create faith in unbelievers so that they're ready for the coming of the judgment of the Lamb. It's not just news. It's not just information that there's going to be a judgment to come. I think most unbelievers already know that. Do you know that most religions in the world already include some kind of final judgment? That's not uniquely Christian. That's the way every religion works. Everybody has this innate sense of right and wrong and that I'm not the one who's done right, I've done wrong, and I deserve some kind of judgment. That's built into all false religions, and so it's not unique to Christianity. What is unique is that in the telling of the coming, here in chapter 6, verses 12 through 17, there's power here to see the kindness of this telling in its power to win new faith in the person who's not yet ready for it. There might be someone in this room or someone listening through live stream or via recording that might not be ready for the judgment of the Lord to come. I don't want to be the kind of pastor and I don't want to be the kind of church that because it is so unseemly, And because it is so counseled against and advised against by so many self-styled pundits and theologians and academics and counselors for pastors not to preach on the wrath of God. You'll ruin your church. You'll empty your pews. You'll you'll run down your giving. You'll make enemies. You'll cause people to be confused as to the nature of the love and grace and mercy of Christ. I rather see that if I simply hide myself behind the word and say everything that's here as best as I possibly can, that God by his Holy Spirit will take the word and even in the word of this sober warning, one of the most sober passages I've ever seen in all the Bible or ever preached on, right here in front of me, God might take it and offer it as a kind confirmation for you who are ready for the end time to come. And this judgment will not fall on you. And you will go out of here with such thankfulness that you will say, I am not going to be late. And others of you have never had that feeling. You've never known the joy of being safe in hiding in Jesus Christ. And you will walk out of this room today for the very first time saying, oh, that's what it's like to be a Christian. I see why we say the greatest thing in all the world is to be saved. Kind warning number one. God's justice requires cosmic collapse. Kind warning number one. God's justice requires cosmic collapse. Verses 12 through 14. When he opened the sixth seal, that's the lamb, I looked, John says, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. This is total and complete end-time destruction by the Lamb of the world that the Lamb and the Father previously created. How do I know it's total and complete? Because Revelation uses seven every time it wants us to see something total and complete. Count them with me. Great earthquake, 
Sun turns black, moon turns red, stars fall from the sky, sky vanishes like a scroll, every mountain removed, every island removed, there's the seven. This is complete destruction. That's why there's seven here. It should stun you that the God of all creation who receives all worship and praise in heaven because he's the creator, Revelation 4, verse 11, worthy are you to receive all glory because all things were created by you, that his creation that he called good, he comes through the Lamb's final or sixth seal. He opens the seal and he destroys everything he made. Can you look into the face of your father if he's a farmer and there has been such a poison that's come over his crops that he has spent generations growing and strengthening and, and, and purifying and breeding so that they are robust and delicious and safe and has provided for all your income and yet such a poison has come over them that he takes a torch to his entire field. Can you picture his face? Can you picture your father's face if your father is a a beekeeper and he keeps hundreds of thousands of bees and then discovers there's a mite infestation and so he has to pull a queen and a drone and a worker and set them aside and then he has to take a fire hose and with fire wipe out every one of those hundreds of thousands of bees that he's kept from generations past. Can you see his face? Can you see the face of your father if he is a greenhouse keeper and inside his greenhouse are orchids, rare and beautiful, and every flower and unique creation of all the flora in the world are in your father's greenhouse and he realizes there's been a massive freeze and what he must do is torch it all and start over again. Can you see his face? The lamb opens the sixth seal and the first thing that happens is everything that he made and called good, he destroys. Because of sin in the world. My sin. Romans chapter 8 reveals that on this world, preparing it for the destruction of the wrath of the Lamb, is a curse of sin that's there because Adam and Eve sinned and because I'm in Adam and Eve and so are you, we brought sin into the world. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that's God, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Paul goes on in verse 22 of Romans 8, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth till now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. This promise to destroy creation is all over the Old Testament, isn't it? It's in all the prophets, Isaiah, Nahum 1.5, Ezekiel 38.20, and many more. It's actually here in Revelation 6, a quote from Joel chapter 2. I'm going to read Joel 2 in just a moment. But what I want you to see is that even in this most horrific of events, when the Lamb opens the seal and all His beloved creation He destroys, He's doing it because of the grave sin that he's punishing on the world, meaning all of the tragedies in the world you and I experience, including sickness in our bodies, famines, pandemics, tornadoes, tsunamis, storms, loss of every kind in the natural realm is meant to make us say, Lord, you're reminding us again of how horrible our sin is, aren't you? 
You're reminding us again by this moment in this point of world history with our eyes open to monkeypox, with our eyes open to COVID-19 or, or a thousand other natural difficulties in the world, droughts and floods, all of these things are meant to make us say, you subjected this whole world to futility in the hope that we would see it and repent of our sin. You are enabling that. Now I'll read Joel 2 and listen carefully to the flow of thought in the prophet Joel. It's exactly what we're seeing in Revelation 6. God says, and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire, columns of smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. How should Joel's readers and us respond? Listen, the very next verse, verse 32, this is stunning. And it shall come to pass during the day when all of those things are happening, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Nature is evangelistic. Nature and all the things that are happening in nature are trying to get you to become a Christian. Nature means for you to say, this is what sin looks like when it touches the natural realm. God subjected it to futility and hope. What hope? That you would receive his grace and mercy and forgiveness before the final destruction arrives. Don't ever think it's proportional. God never gives to an individual human being all that they deserve in this life. He's always merciful. It's not proportional. It never is. No one gets sick because of one specific sin resulting in that sickness. That's the error the Pharisees made when they asked Jesus, is this guy blind because of his sin or his parents? No, no, no. None. It's a collective settling of the curse upon all humanity. That's why people are blinded and all manner of other hardships occur, sad as they are. The call is repent. Trust in Christ. Don't waste the pain you're going through. Don't waste the difficult diagnosis. Don't waste the news you've heard. Don't waste the horrors that are happening to the world around us. Let it all point you repeatedly and over and over back to trusting in Christ. Remind, let yourself be reminded that there's still yet time if you see another flood or a hurricane or a storm or an earthquake. There will come a day when the wrath of the Lamb is released and this world will be destroyed. The very thing our sovereign Lord created for his glory will be destroyed. Yes, to be replaced by a new heavens and a new earth. But the sorrow should settle on us as we look into his face when destruction occurs to the very creation he created. There's a kind warning also in verses 15 through 17. Kind warning number two, God's justice requires the destruction of sinners. God's justice requires destruction of all sinners. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come who can stand. How do I know this is complete condemnation and wrath? upon all humanity? How do I know? Because again, 
verse 15, includes seven categories of persons under its wrath. Kings, your authority won't save you. Great ones, your fame won't save you. Generals, your military might won't save you. Rich, your money won't save you. Powerful, your influence won't save you. Slave, your victimhood won't save you. And free, your liberty won't save you. Christ alone saves in the final judgment. What does it mean that there are seven categories? It means God is no respecter of persons, as Peter learned in the vision of Acts 10. It means God will bring universal judgment over all the earth. No one will escape except those who have found their rescue in Christ. This warning is a merciful call to repentance for all persons in the world. Come out of Hinduism. Come out of Buddhism. Come out of Judaism. Come out of Islam. Come out of your agnosticism. Come out of every other error and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Hate me if you will. Come out and be saved. One interpreter reminded me that this prayer, this prayer of the people who are unbelievers at the time of the final judgment to be covered by rocks is exactly what Adam and Eve did back in the garden when they were ashamed of their sin. In the garden, they were aware that they had sinned and they scampered and looked for coverings and they covered themselves. It was a massive confession of sin. This too is a massive confession of profound sin. Whatever these lost unbelievers had been trusting in to hide their sin doesn't work when the Lamb comes back and all of His glory is on display in full power and stunning wrath. Nothing else can hide wise and right as they were to say, I must be hidden. Only Christ himself and his blood can cover us and hide us, as it were, in the cleft of the rock. Here, they're crying for rocks to fall on them. I would rather have a swift death and commit suicide and be destroyed by the rocks whom I pray to. Very interesting that these people pray to rocks. It's a normal thing for unbelievers to reject God and pray to the creation. They're praying to the rocks to fall on them. I want my swift suicide so that I do not have to face the wrath of the Lamb. And yet the Lamb and His wrath is the very rock they need to hide into to be saved. Words fail in trying to capture the wonder and the glory and the irony and the poignancy of the very Savior who died on the cross as the Lamb of God, who brings a wrath down upon all those who spurned him and his offer of salvation. What a kind mercy that the Lord speaks this sober word that all who reject Christ will be destroyed in the end. The rocks and the mountains that are crumbling and falling apart and being removed from their place are the very structures of creation that they cry out to fall on themselves, and yet that's not the worst day of their lives. That's actually the best day of their lives. When they die by rocks and mountains falling on them, because then they face the wrath of the Lamb indeed, as it is as well, and an eternity of it. It's in Christ and in Christ alone that we are found safe, fleeing to Him, trusting in Him, 
doing it falteringly, doing it poorly. Oh, don't think that this passage or my message or any faithful biblical message would ever call us to some kind of false perfection. Oh, no, it's a collapsing. It's a, it's a simple admitting of our need. It's a, it's a fight of faith to say, Lord, I believe, but help all my unbelief. It's my unbelief that that I struggle with, and that's the fight of faith that defines Paul and every believer's life, mine included, and I trust also yours. What a grace to know that he helps us in that fight of faith and that he says, even that tiny little mustard seed of faith that I put in there, that's what causes you to be mine and be rescued in me. Kind warning number three, God's justice purchased in Jesus Christ, our hiding place. God's justice purchased in Jesus Christ, our hiding place. You see, they have no place to hide. They need to hide from their sin, and the rocks and the mountains are unuseful in hiding from their sin. But we who are in Christ, we have a place to hide. Colossians 3, 3 through 4, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The word hidden is the same verb as John uses here in Revelation 6 to refer to the help these unbelievers are seeking from rocks and mountains. Look at the very thing that they want to avoid. This is so helpful, isn't it? This is, answers the question, how do I know? How do I know if I'm one ready for the, the wrath of God to come because I'm hidden in Christ? Look at what they want to avoid. They say to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face. They don't want to see his face of him who is seated on the throne. They hate the fact that he's seated on the throne. And from the wrath of the Lamb... Those are the three things that they hate most about him. I don't want to see his face. I don't want to bow before his sovereignty on his throne. And I certainly don't believe that he has any right to execute wrath over the earth. For the believer, for you and me, we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man... That is, when I'm with Christ, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then, face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. 1 Corinthians 13, do you find inside your heart a desire to look into the face of Christ and see him receive you with not a hint of disappointment or of wrath or of shame or of condemnation on his face for you? Not a hint. They abhor his face. We delight in his face. Genuine believers falteringly and with the fight of faith and weakly and with constant struggles with sin, yet we still say, I do want to see his face. They hate that he's seated on the throne and sovereign over all things. He's the son of God and the son of man. That he is is Jesus Christ the righteous, the lamb of God, the root of Jesse, the line of Judah. They hate that he rules over the world. And yet when he says to us, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, we rejoice. We thrill at his kingdom and authority. We thrill at his power. His kingdom and authority is our protection. It's our safety. It's our hope. It's our our vindication when wrongs have been done to us. 
So we're happy to agree with Peter in 2 Peter 1. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall, for in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're glad to say with Revelation 11, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. There were loud voices in heaven saying, and we'll add ours to it, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. We're glad at that. We don't recoil from that. We delight in that. We love to see his face. We love his reign on the throne. And we see this, the suitableness, the fittedness of the Lamb's wrath. How can we say yes and amen to the Lamb's wrath? Here's how I do. Let me hold this out to you and see if this makes sense to you. The Lamb has qualities that define him as attributes. He is love. He is justice. He is holiness. He is wisdom. He is power. Wrath is not one of those essential qualities. The Bible never says of God, of Jesus, or of the Spirit, he is wrath. He never, that never says that. It says he has wrath. What does it mean? It means that when sin is presented before a holy God, all of his attributes like a multi-beam laser focus against that sin, and that's his wrath. All of who he is is his wrath focused against sin. He doesn't have an essential quality of wrath, all of his essential qualities combined together destroy and incinerate sin, and that's his wrath. In other words, it's fully appropriate and fully just and fully glorious and fully wonderful that we can even worship before the Lamb that he will not sweep the sin of the world under the rug forever. But he brings it out. He exposes it. And he levels his righteous wrath against it for its destruction. So all the believers who are protected in Christ, having been covered by his blood, and even though falteringly and weakly say, I believe, help my unbelief, we will join our voice with Revelation 7 that we'll look at the next time we're together. Salvation belongs to our God. Salvation from what? Salvation from his wrath. Belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb seeing his face, bowing before his throne, agreeing with his just judgments on sin, that wells up inside your heart, doesn't it? There's something in your heart that says that's real for me. Something that says, yes, I agree with that. Amen, and I love it. One trustworthy interpreter of this scripture writes, in the last and coming last days to which the Old Testament looked forward to have now arrived but they have not yet run their course. The Christian church is still living in this eschaton. Jesus' first coming inaugurated it. His second coming will consummate it. The coming of Jesus was therefore the beginning of the end. So the question is, are you ready for the end to come? Is Christ your hiding place? Is Christ the rock that you have been put into and God's hand has covered over you so that he can pass by without his glory consuming and incinerating you. The grace of the Lamb must protect you from the wrath of the Lamb. It takes the Lamb of God to save us from the Lamb of God. That's why we say the greatest thing in all the world is to be saved. 
J.C. Ryle, a preacher from the early 1900s, said, There will only be two parties of mankind at the last great day, those who are on the right hand of Christ and those who are on the left, those who are counted righteous, those who are wicked, those who are safe in the ark and those who are outside, those who are gathered like wheat into God's barn, those who are left behind like tares to be burned. Now, what will your portion be? And I ask, are you ready? Is your spouse ready? Is your parents ready? Is your grandchildren and children ready? Are your friends ready? Are your enemies ready? Are those you interact with online and at work ready? I want to be ready. I confess I see a desire for his face and his throne and his justice in me, and I love him. But I also confess it's a battle. It's a struggle. There's unbelief in me, and I want so badly to put it to death. Take heart, believer. Take heart. This judgment is not far from us. We don't know when, but we know it may come at whatever hour God deems best. He hasn't even revealed to his son. And yet those who are hiding in him will be rescued through it. In Jesus' name, let's pray together.